Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. Hello, friends. Before we jump into today's sermon, I want to just give a quick explanation of our upcoming Christmas Eve service. Our Christmas Eve worship gathering will be at 5 p.m. Christmas Eve night. We won't be having a morning gathering. It's an evening gathering. And we're going to be focusing on the fact that in the Incarnation, God got a body. Uh, What does that mean? On Christmas Eve night, we need your help reflecting on what it means that God got a body. And here's how I'm looking for your help. I want you to choose a body part that God got in the incarnation and then fill in the following blanks. So God got, and let's say you chose toes, God got toes. Then you say, I have toes. And then you're going to tell us a little bit about what it's like to have toes. So let me give you an example. If I was sharing about toes, I would say, when I was little, I remember that my toes were super ticklish. I have early memories of people tickling my toes, and I would laugh uncontrollably. They'd do the, this little piggy went to market thing, and it worked every time. But at some point, people stopped tickling my toes. I remember a nighttime routine where my mom would pull off my socks and tuck us in. And then underneath the bed sheets, I would wiggle my toes. Uh, They felt so, so free. I remember tying on shoes, trying on shoes, and my parents would say, wiggle your toes. And then, nope, not that pair, they're too tight. No, not that pair, they're too big. And I would always wear my shoes out around my pinky toes. That's where I blow my shoes out. Being a soccer player, my toes have taken a beating. I've had times when I I didn't know if they were broken or just jammed. I've had my toes taped up so that I could keep playing when they were blistered. When my toes get cold, I have a terrible time warming them up. It's strange how I could be on an outing that... It was otherwise an incredible adventure, but just this one part of my body, my toes would feel like ice. And all I could think about was leaving the adventure and getting my toes warmed up in a nice warm bath or in front of the fire. I've dealt with ingrown toenails. I've even had surgery. At one point, I lost a toenail. Something heavy crushed it. I remember going through a season when I was passionate about rock climbing. Uh, It was all about the toe work. 
if you could get a toe on it, you were supposed to be able to climb it. I was never that good. No one knows it, but when I'm in an awkward situation or an anxious situation, I curl my toes inside my shoes. I, I don't know why. It just happens. And I can remember doing that from a very early age. My toes help me balance. Often I don't think about them, but when I am aware of them, it's in a balance situation where I can feel them spreading out, or it's when I'm poised to move quickly. So I have toes. In the incarnation, God got toes. So if God got toes that tickled and wiggled and blistered and felt icy, and perhaps God even scrunched his toes in anxious situations, maybe that tells me that Jesus understands something about laughter and maybe what it's like for an adventure to turn into no fun anymore, or just understanding a physical challenge or needing to find some balance, maybe even something about feeling anxious. So that's an example of a reflection on a body part that God got. So for Christmas Eve night, I'm looking for you to share some kind of uh, answer to this question. I have, you choose a body part, and then you say what it's like to have that body part. All right. Let's jump into today's sermon. In between every Egypt and every promised land lies a wilderness experience. It's a desert. In between the terror of bondage and the destination of well-being lies a journey through the wilderness. This is the ancient biblical story of the Exodus. Um, as the ancient story goes, the people of Israel became enslaved in Egypt, uh, oppressed by Pharaoh, and they cried out to God for help. And it's the story of God sending Moses and his brother Aaron to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And it's the story of God saving the people of Israel and many other enslaved people groups, not just the people of Israel, from certain destruction as Pharaoh's army closed in on them and they were trapped against the Red Sea. It's the story of God opening a path across the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, and the waters closed back in behind them and swallowed up Pharaoh's army. But the people didn't turn around on the other side of the Red Sea, that incredible experience. They didn't turn around and walk into the Promised Land. They turned around and they faced a desert. They faced decades of feeling stuck in a no-man's land in the desert, they faced numerous experiences of becoming hungry and thirsty and not knowing where their next drink or their next meal 
was coming from. They started wondering why God brought them out into the desert to die of thirst. Why didn't God just let them die back in Egypt? They lashed out at Moses, their leader. So, yeah, it's an ancient story, but it isn't only a story that happened back then. It's a story that we all live today. The story becomes a metaphor for the journeys that we all walk. Our own journeys from bondage to well-being or shalom, peace, they are not a straight path. They are not an instant path. They are long and slow and winding and grinding through the wilderness. And it goes something like this. So, first of all, life becomes unbearable and unsustainable. There's an ominous threat that looms over your head, whether it's relational, career, family, marriage, health, financial, it's something. And it feels like certain destruction and dysfunction, perhaps even death, appears inevitable. And you cry out to God in desperation. God, help, I don't know what to do. And God hears your cry, and God does something incredible. You experience your own Red Sea kind of a miracle. So somehow you dodge a bullet, doors are opened, things change in a way that feels unbelievable and serendipitous. It feels like a miracle. You see a light at the end of the tunnel, it's like, okay, finally things are actually going to be all right. But then you turn around and you face a wilderness. You face an experience of feeling stuck in a no man's land. And you face an experience of not having something that feels very crucial to life. You are wandering and wishing and there's something vital you don't have. Perhaps you lose vital friendships, you lose support, you lose physical health, you lose your income, you lose your driver's license, you lose something crucial. And life goes from an acute struggle into some kind of a chronic struggle. There's no hope on the horizon. And so you start to think back on that experience of God getting you out of that last bind. It's the Red Sea experience. And you start to wonder, what was the point of that? If God is just going to hang you out to dry on this one. And so you start to wish God would have just let you, quote, die in Egypt, rather than put you through whatever comes next. So it's kind of like, well, why did God get me through that bout with cancer? if I have to turn around and face chronic back pain? Or why did God get me, uh, provide me with a better job if inflation is going to cause a single bag of groceries to cost 80 bucks and I'm going to find out that my house has dry rotten mold and it's going to cost a ton to repair it? Or why did God give you such great friends only to have them move away or die and leave you all alone? Why did God get you through that part of your marriage that 
looked like certain divorce if the marriage is going to feel this lonely and be this much work? Why did God save you from bankruptcy only to face the worst battle with depression you've ever faced? It's, it's all a wilderness experience. And you begin to think about your traumatic past in an almost romantic way. Like, I just wish it had all ended back there in Egypt. I wish I could even be back in Egypt. I wish I never got the job. I wish I never moved away. I wish the marriage never started or it ended back there. Or I wish I declared bankruptcy or that I died of cancer. It's not that you actually want to end things it's not that you actually wish you were back in Egypt. It's that you hate feeling stuck on the path of suffering. You hate feeling stuck in the wilderness. More than anything, you wish you could bypass the suffering. You wish there was a fast track to shalom, well-being, the promised land. Being stuck in the wilderness causes people to lash out at whoever they can say might be responsible. So the people of Israel lashed out at Moses for dragging them out into the desert to die of thirst. For you, it might be co-workers or family members or spouse or random telemarketers. But underneath all of the lashing out, you're not actually lashing out at them because it's not about them it's about how this experience is making you feel about God you wish you felt like you knew and trusted that God loves you and cares for you the way that it felt like God did back at the Red Sea back then it felt like God was close by and watching over you but right now you just feel like you don't know where God is or what God's doing. You are stuck in the wilderness, in a no-man's land. When you were stuck in Egypt, you didn't know if you were going to survive. But now that you're stuck in the wilderness, you don't know how much farther you can go. And honestly, both of them are awful. You wish there was a way to bypass it all. Now, if this is you today... I just want to say I'm really sorry. I'm sorry that your experience is so hard. And in our gathering on Sunday, we had a discussion question. So I invite you to reflect on this. Or if you're listening along with someone, chat about this with them. In Egypt, the people groaned and they cried out to God for help. In the wilderness... The people lashed out at Moses, and they questioned God's heart towards them. Why do you think we tend to treat God differently in our Egypt experiences than in our wilderness journeys? So take a moment and reflect on that.
Alright, this brings us to the third and final temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, the pinnacle. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Any movie buffs listening today or TV buffs, uh, story buffs, novel buffs, if you enjoy any story well told, then you know that the illusion of security is what makes people the most gullible. So, for instance, Cooper and I recently watched a Spider-Man movie, and the villain has this ability of masquerading himself as someone else. He can make himself look like other people. And the villain in the story wants to find out Spider-Man's secrets, and so he concocts a fake battle where it seems like Spider-Man wins. And then at the end of the battle, the villain shows up disguised as one of the people Spider-Man trusts. And he congratulates Spider-Man on beating the villain. And then he asks Spider-Man his secrets. And Spider-Man spills his guts. He falls for the trick. He doesn't realize that the illusion of security is what makes people the most gullible. Now, so many stories have this dynamic where the hero encounters something that they see as a hardship and they make it through. It's difficult, but they succeed. They defeat their enemy. They accomplish their goal, they think, and they finally feel like they can get their breath. They feel like they can set down their armor, let down their guard, relax, and finally say, Whew, we made it through that one, and breathe a sigh of relief. Now, sometimes what happens next takes you unaware, but other times you can almost see what's coming next. When the main character lets down their guard, <laughs> you're saying, no, 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 don't. Don't relax. Don't let down your guard because you're bracing yourself because you know what comes next. You know that the illusion of security is what makes people most gullible. You know that the double agent has been waiting for them to let down their guard so that they can finally make their move. You know that the reason the casino heist works is because the security guards think that they've already foiled the heist. They think they've already arrested the thieves. They think the vault is secure. You know that 
it's just when you think you're secure that the doors burst open and the monster attacks, or that's when the bomb goes off. That's when the real attack comes. That's when the real heist happens. That's when the double agent makes his move. And it's almost as if everything leading up to that point was simply a diversion, an illusion, a trick meant to make you let down your guard. That's what this temptation with Jesus is. Jesus and the devil in, the, in Jerusalem, it's an illusion. So when you've been stuck in the wilderness, as Jesus had, for 40 days starving, being attacked and assailed by your greatest enemy, and when life feels like it has chewed you up and spit you out, and you are feeling exhausted and beat up and worn down, but you know that you've won, not once, but twice, when it's all over, where do you want to go? You want to go home, of course. You want to go to your safe place. So where was that safe place for Jesus? Well, for many of us, if you had a safe upbringing at all, your sense of home is connected to early childhood memories. It's connected to your father's house. So where was home for Jesus? Well, if you flip your Bible back one page, or for some people it might be on the same page, going from Luke 4 to Luke 2, it tells this story when Jesus was 12 years old. His family would go on spiritual pilgrimage every year to the holy city of Jerusalem, to the holiest place in that city, the temple, the place where God's presence was believed to reside, the place where heaven and earth were believed to meet. Uh, it was believed that God's throne was directly above the pinnacle of the temple with the angels all around. So going to the pinnacle of the temple was literally like the closest place on earth you could get to God. Now, as a 12-year-old, Jesus was already expressing that the temple was where he felt the most at home. He called it his father's house. It's where he felt close to God, close to his father. And this is where the devil brought Jesus, to his father's house. He brought him to his safe place, the place where Jesus might feel like he could finally let down his guard and rest. Because the illusion of security is what makes us the most gullible. This final temptation was the illusion that maybe the temptations are actually over. The devil brought Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple where not only is he as close as he can get, to God, but he's overlooking all of his memories in this place. He can look back over so many memories of spiritual pilgrimage with his family. This is the house of prayer. If other temptations came from a place of weakness, desperation, longing, desire, 
this temptation is built to come from a place of security and strength. Remember the way that most temptations come to us? They come as a voice, not from the outside, but thoughts in our mind? Like a string of ideas, feelings, thoughts running through our mind, and they seem attractive and familiar and plausible, like they make sense. Twice, Jesus had overcome the temptations by saying, it is written. And then he quoted a passage of scripture taken from the story of the people of Israel and their journey through the wilderness. And so the devil now pretended to speak with Jesus' own voice, or better yet, as the voice of the Father. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, why use this illusion of complete safety and security to convince Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple? That might seem just like a contradictory message. You know, you fall anywhere from the temple wall and it means certain death because it's like 100 to 450 feet down depending where you're falling. So we have to pause here for a minute because we need to do just a little background work to understand this part of the temptation. So the temple was a religious industrial complex. It took up 35 acres the walls were 100 to 300 feet high. It was the center of all Jewish life. It was the heartbeat of all religious life, but so much more. It was the primary revenue for Jerusalem. Money was flowing in constantly from the temple tax. It was the bank for the Jewish people. It was where all the records of debt were kept. And unlike the vast majority of Jewish peasant life, business for the temple was booming. Some years before Jesus came along, there was a man who went into the temple and stole the equivalent of $20 million from the temple. He didn't come close to depleting the temple treasury. Business was booming. The temple owned estates lying outside of Jerusalem. They were farmed by poor peasants. Thousands of people came to Jerusalem every year for festivals, religious festivals. Thousands of animals were sold and sacrificed every year. The temple had an entire plumbing system that shuttled away hundreds of gallons of blood from the sacrifices. I mean, this this place was an operation. The temple was the central authority for all religious, political, civil life for the people of Israel. Uh, just to get a some kind of a comparison for our local church family, think about how many employees it takes at Twin Rocks Friends Camp 
just to turn off the lights and lock up at night? Like how many people are needed to get the place shut down? The temple required 200 people, 200 Levites every day to simply get the doors closed and the place locked up. That is as many or more workers as the camp often has guests. Just to kind of give you a scale of the size of the operation, the temple boasted 18,000 priests, 10,000 Levites, 6,000 Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, 70-member Sanhedrin, which is like the Jewish Supreme Court, and at the head of it all, the high priest, the symbolic head of the Jewish faith and Jewish nation. Now, all these people that I just mentioned were looking for a Messiah who would reestablish the kingdom of Israel, take back the throne of David from the Romans. The prophet Malachi had written centuries earlier. He had said, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, and then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. There were different theories, of course, about how the Messiah would come. Some said, well, he'll be born a human, but he's going to show up in the temple in a, some kind of a definitive moment. Others said, no, the Messiah is actually going to come from the sky, like riding the clouds. So are you beginning to hear what this temptation was to jump off the temple wall? If Jesus could pull off a stunt, like stepping into thin air off of the temple wall, and instead of falling to his death, if he could basically do some kind of an angel parachute game down in front of the Jewish religious heavyweights, and if he could fulfill that prophecy, Malachi 3.1, suddenly the Messiah will come to the temple. If he could fit the mold of the kind of Messiah that the religious heavyweights were looking for, and if he could have all of those people in his back pocket, he would be bypassing so much struggle, so much heartache. We could go as far as to say if he had the temple in his back pocket, he could basically like skip the cross altogether. Throughout all four Gospels, Jesus only encounters opposition from two forces, really. The religious leaders, the temple authorities, you know, and the devil, principalities and powers. But the only reason the Roman Empire is a part of the whole thing and crucifies Jesus is because the Jewish religious leaders are pushing Pilate into it. So what if Jesus could forego these years of opposition from the temple leaders? What if Jesus could be the kind of Messiah that they want, and he could simply fit into their mold? And what if Jesus could bypass them, eventually murdering him, 
and instead have all of this economic support and religious support and political support and civic support that would come from a stamp of approval from the temple. Just imagine what Jesus could do if he had the temple in his back pocket. Are you beginning to hear how cunning this temptation was? How can you be tempted if you're in your father's house, the house of prayer, with scripture running through your mind? It is written. This was a temptation for Jesus to actually be a fulfillment of scripture. Like, look, you passed the temptation of the devil with flying colors. You quoted scripture. Great job. Pat yourself on the back. Now you can relax at the house of prayer and look at what's written for yourself. If you actually believe what God has said about you, that you're the beloved son of God, step out in faith. Take the risk. Be the person that the entire religious establishment is looking for. Do what the prophet Malachi wrote about. Come suddenly to the temple. Henry Nouwen calls this temptation a temptation to become who other people say you need to be. It's, I am what other people say about me, is the identity statement. It's the temptation to earn the approval of others. Now you might think of temptation in general as being enticed to do something terrible, something dark, something taboo. Isn't that what a temptation is? But a lot of people don't think about how there's a temptation to become who good people, even religious people, say you need to be, rather than listening to the voice of God. Fred Craddock says a real temptation is an offer not to fall, but to rise. The tempter in Eden did not ask, do you wish to be as the devil, but do you wish to be as God? Friedrich Dale Brunner says it this way. He says, perhaps we sin as often through presuming on our strengths as we do in succumbing to our weaknesses. So another discussion question, a reflection question. Reflect on how aspects of this same temptation come to everyday people in everyday life. So reflect on that, chat about that. Jesus didn't fall for this illusion, this temptation. He recognized the situation for what it was. And he responded with a story from scripture that made the illusion fall away. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6.16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Uh, he was referring to a story you can find in Exodus 17. Deserts have a big problem, and that is no water. 
the wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel included water problem after water problem after water problem. And Massa was the third water problem that they encountered. You can't live long without water. And at that point, they began lashing out at Moses and wishing that they had just died back in Egypt. The wilderness was all about God testing the people. God wanted to discover what was in their heart. Would they trust God to provide for them? But in the wilderness, the people began testing God. They began questioning what was in God's heart for them. Did God really love and care for them? Were they God's beloved? So this is the story that Jesus refers to. Jesus was about to embark on a new journey, his public ministry, and it wasn't going to be easy. How does it feel to declare the kingdom of God is near in village after village and to be hated by the entire religious establishment? Nearly 18,000 priests, 10,000 Levites, 6,000 Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, a 70-member Sanhedrin, a chief priest. How does it feel to have the majority of all those people want to kill you? It feels bad. It feels really bad. And it makes you wish that you had never started your ministry to begin with. It makes you wish that you had, quote, died back in Egypt. It makes you question yourself and your identity, wonder if you're crazy. It makes you wish you could bypass all of this conflict and struggle and just do something that would make everyone like you. It makes you wish that you could be the person that other people want you to be. It makes you wonder about God's heart for you. Like, if your mission, as you understand it, is causing every bit of the religious establishment to hate you, can you keep telling yourself that you're hearing God correctly? Or is something wacky going on with God? Like, how can the entire religious establishment really have God so wrong? So this is what Jesus was up against. In his humanity, I don't know if Jesus could see his way through this illusion, but he could listen his way through. What was the voice of the Father saying? What had the Father already said? You are my beloved Son. And Jesus recognized this temptation for the illusion that it was. And he basically said, even without having the religious establishment in my back pocket, whatever their opposition to me, I'm going to walk the path of faithfulness. Even if it means I can't avoid the path of suffering, I'm not going to question the Father's heart. Even when I encounter human hatred and violence, I know who I am. I am God's beloved son. No matter what they say about me, no matter what they do to me. So what about us? Sometimes we feel like skipping the hard stuff. 
the suffering? Is there a way to bypass the wilderness? We feel the pressure to fit the mold, become who other people say we need to be. Sometimes we are past desperation and we just feel mad. We want to lash out. Sometimes we wonder, why did I even used to think that God was a thing back at the Red Sea experience? Like now I'm out here in the wilderness and I'm not even sure that God is real because God feels like such a faraway idea in the midst of this struggle. Sometimes the wilderness is so hard and sometimes the illusion of security is so subtle that it just feels impossible to see our way through. I don't know if you can see your way through all the time, but I think you can listen your way through. Because the good news is that Jesus has overcome this temptation. This temptation is not a temptation that humanity has been able to overcome, but Jesus has been able to overcome it. And Jesus can lead you through where you cannot see. You can listen for the voice of Jesus coming from the deepest place inside of you. Speaking that word that Jesus has learned to hear and to remind us of and to receive. You are beloved. You are the beloved of God. And if you can slow yourself down enough in the moment to say, Okay, God, what are you saying to me? Nine times out of ten, you won't hear an answer of do this, do that. But somewhere way deep down, you will sense, hey, I love you. I love your guts. You are my beloved. And somehow that message of beloved identity changes you. It changes your ability to recognize the illusions for what they are. It changes your ability to walk on the journey forward through the wilderness and trust God to provide all the way to promised land, well-being, that place of shalom.
Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.